Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of... Oops. Welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty Programs Victorian Labor College. In the studio is Kim Doyle. Hi, everyone. John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And at 10.30, we'll invite you to uh, call up and have your say on anything we've talked about or not talked about. So now I think I've got confused as to who is going to start. Kim's going to start. All right, Kim. Well, it goes without saying that the re-election of the Tories in Britain is nothing short of a disaster for the British working class. David Cameron's government has presided over five brutal years of austerity. Cuts to the National Health Service were made in order to fund handouts to bankers and financial barons of the City of London. This has been the strategy of the ruling class in Britain since the Thatcher era, when they turned London into a massive tax haven for the super-rich of not just Britain but the globe. In the 1980s and 90s, uh, Britain saw all kinds of oligarchs um, flock to their shores, from corrupt Greek shipping magnates to Saudi oil barons. They all benefited from the so-called non-dom laws, laws that allow the super-rich to claim um, a foreign domicile. The key benefit of being a non-dom is that it allows the super-rich to avoid paying income or capital gains tax on investments kept overseas as long as they do not bring the income or the gains into the UK, which sounds like a really sound economic policy. They can also avoid inheritance tax on properties held overseas. So the Tories are happy to have rich uh, migrants that refuse to pay their way, but poor migrants that actually, if you look at the figures, add millions to the UK economy are apparently bludgers. But the real bludgers are the rich, and they're also the ones that are responsible for the crisis and not just in Britain. So in the last five years of the Conservatives in Britain, workers' real wages were slashed by 8%. Tories will now claim a mandate for austerity, even though this is not a true reflection of the vote. They will now be emboldened to go even harder, to go in even harder and to shore up profits for, the, for their super-rich mates at the expense of the British working class. And the hysterical and unrelenting attacks on Muslims and migrants are certain to escalate. But the big take-home message was not for the Tories, but for Labor, that by all accounts got completely smashed. This is the decisive factor in Smarmy Pants' smug git of the year Cameron's victory. Labor's betrayal let the Tories back in. And let's be clear, Labor lost, not because it was too right-wing, like Tony Blair and his cronies have been saying. Too left-wing. But, oh yes, not because they were too, yeah, too left-wing, um, but because they were far too right-wing. Um, well, they just viewed it as another establishment party. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. And a third of the British working class didn't even bother to vote. That's how little they saw that mattered. Yeah. And, and it's, 2010 wasn't too much different. Yeah, and it's difficult to see how Labor could really be more right-wing. Um, and if you, if you actually look at Scotland, which is a good example there, the Labor Party has been the biggest party since 1959, but it was all but eradicated in the political tidal wave that swept through the entire country. And the Scottish National Party went from six seats to 56 seats. And this entirely unprecedented result 
has happened because the SNP was able to portray itself as to the left of Labour. 56 it, out of 59. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. incredible. Mm. Its leaders spoke out against austerity, against Trident nuclear missiles, war and much more. And Labour's uh, shadow foreign secretary, um, Douglas Alexander, even acknowledged, and I quote, Scotland has voted to oppose the Tories, but it hasn't trusted Labour to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think the English haven't trusted Labour to do so either, but they don't have any alternative. Um, so the Scottish Labour united with the Tories to save the union during the referendum. Um, and this referendum, a lot of it was about the fact that Scotland did not want to implement austerity and they wanted to keep their um, national health service. So mm. it was quite left-wing. Um, and it's really bizarre that actually the Scottish Labour chose a right-wing leader and then humiliated him when he felt reserved um, to speak about to speak out against cuts because, you know, it's really hard for right-wingers to speak out against cuts. Mm. So it's bizarre that they chose someone so right wing. Yeah. yeah, Jim Murphy, and I think he's look he's he's on pretty shaky ground at the moment. If he hasn't actually quit, yeah. Um, so it's telling that the voter turnout in Scotland at seventy one percent, as Chris mentioned, was far higher than in England. So to some extent, the population has been mobilised at least electorally to vote against austerity. And the Tories will be in big trouble in Scotland because there is not even the pretense of a mandate for austerity. The other area in which Labor spectacularly failed to capitalise on was the swing against the Liberal Democrats, who've been utterly discredited for their um, their cronyism and their more conservatives. Yeah. Well, they went into bed with the Conservatives at the last election, which must have been very embarrassing for someone like Billy Bragg, who considers who calls calls himself a socialist and always speaks mm. out very very well, and he jumped in when the Liberal oh, Democrats. Oh, did he? Did he really? Yeah, well, that's yeah, embarrassing. He was with the Liberal Democrats for quite a while. Yeah, really. I think even Nick Clegg is embarrassed to be in the Liberal Democrats at the moment. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah. Um, so their vote decreased by a massive 15.2 percent, and Labor completely failed to capitalised on any of this anger. They didn't relate to it at all. Mm. And it's not that the Labor Party is incompetent so much as under Ed Miliband they refused to oppose Corey, uh, Tory cuts outright, let alone attempt to mobilise any sort of mass resistance to austerity. And despite um, Miliband's promises to crack down on billionaire tax dodgers, Miliband went out of his way to parrot the financial orthodoxy promising expenditure restraint and a reduction in the deficit for every year in government. So and, that means austerity. Yeah. And sorry to interrupt, Kim, but before the election, Miliband ruled out a deal of power sharing in any way with the SNP. It's mad. That's ridiculous. Woo. From a, from a party political well, point of view, price. that's ridiculous. He's paid the price. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only way he was going to get into power, into government, was be doing a deal. Yeah, but that would attach him to fighting yes. austerity, which yeah. he didn't want to do. Yeah, and, and being pro-independence. Mm. Mm. Now, there has been a spate of humiliating resignations, um, mm. as John mentioned. Uh, Miliband, for one. Nick Clegg um, of the Lib Dems, who I mentioned, who uh, this has been a long time coming for him, and he almost looked relieved, really. And the um, and the everyman, um, which is how he attempted to posi- position himself, Farage. the infamous um, UKIP leader he's, Nigel Farage. He, no, he hasn't resigned. No, he hasn't yeah, resigned, he's yeah. actually said I he's not he resigning. Was, yeah, that's the United Kingdom UK. Independence Party, which is a right-wing racist. Yes, led outfit. by Mr. Farage. That's very British, isn't it? <laughs> it is, and actually, it's funded by a whole just a whole lot of billionaires, and or just one or two or something. It's yeah, just a party of money in lots of ways. Mm. Um, but it's very worrying because 
although Farage lost his seat, uh, they, UKIP has grown to become the third largest party in Britain with almost 4 million votes. They also came second in more than 100 seats, so I think that's about one-sixth of the British Parliament. I think oh, they yeah, have 600 yeah. seats, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, and I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't say that some of the anti-austerity sentiment has moved to the right in the UK, and I think as well, and you can see the same thing in France, whereas the direction has been more to the left in Greece and Spain. Uh, so this is a worrying development. Um, and this means that we can expect more fear, racism and anti-terror rhetoric. So Cameron is set to announce new plans, and I think this this is the Wednesday coming up, which is the Queen's speech. Um, but he's going to talk about a crackdown on extremist activity. So Cameron will tell the National Security Council the new measures will give police powers to go to the High Court to request orders to prevent harmful activities of individuals who pose a threat to the functioning of democracy. You'll also target those who perpetrate harmful activities for the purpose of overthrowing democracy. Mm. Probably everyone in this room. Yes, that's good. Um, <laughs> individuals suspected of disseminating inflammatory material will be subject to a ban on broadcasting and a requirement to submit any publications to websites, in print or on social media, to the police in advance. Oh, gee, so, police censorship. Yeah, in other words, just blatant state Censorship. It reminds me of um, FIFA Vendetta, if people have seen that movie. So it's good. Um, Added powers given to the police will also allow them to close premises where they believe extremists are being given a platform to influence others. Uh, Again, possibly this radio station. Um, Cameron will tell the National Security Council, and I quote, For too long we have been a passively tolerant society, saying to our citizens, as long as you obey the law, uh, we will leave you alone. It's often meant we have stood neutral between different values and that's helped foster a narrative of extremism and grievance. So I think it's quite worrying because the Abbott government in some ways has gone in the same direction with this budget boosting defence and domestic spying. I think the only positive is that there have been spontaneous protests in response to the uh, the re-election of the Tories, and they've been saying we want the Tories to understand that this is not a mandate for austerity. This is basically because we that's not the reason you've been elected, is that we have no other choice. So, um, and I thought you'd like to know, John, that uh, Russell Brand is back saying a lot of the same things that he's been saying before. He's learned his lesson, has he? Yeah, he's uh, a little bit, yeah. He's, and he says some of the same things that we say about the Scottish National Party mm. um, and about... Um, the UK Independence Party getting whipping up racism and getting a lot of the racist vote, um, and also some things about organic vegetables. But he's always a bit of a mixed bag. <laughs> but um, thanks, Kim. But I think uh, a lot of some of these protests were actually against the the, the whole democratic process, as it's called. The Tories get thirty seven percent of the vote, yet have a majority of seats. Mm. UKIP is the third biggest party, yet gets one seat. Where the Scottish National Party, even though that support the SNP over the UKIP, but whereas the SNP are the fourth biggest party, yet get fifty six seats. Yes, you know, mm. it's, I mean it's a very well, it's, it's a, a first fast. past the you know. first past the post yeah. system. Yes, yeah, it's a first past the post system. It's, ve- it's really it's very un- undemocratic. Oh, it's so very unfair. Quite a lot of people yes. would like a proportional representation, like the yes, Germans, like system. we should have here. You yeah, sound like you are talking about threatening democracy, John. No, I'm not. I'm <laughs> 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 Definitely David Cameron's version of it. Yes, yes. I suppose. Now you're um, talking about our um, well, I'm, royal biz. Yeah, yeah, royal biz. More British stuff. 
But uh, before I go on, um, can I just say thank you to um, Justin for sending in the letter? And we actually received it last week. Well, it's not a letter. It's a, it's a book cover of the Ghost Runner, a very determined-looking man. And so thanks to Justin for sending that in to all of us, and that's a really nice show of appreciation. It's always lovely to hear from people. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Well, good stuff. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> yes, Feedback um, is good. On Wednesday, Prince Charles lost in his campaign to prevent publication of letters he sent to the British Labour government ministers during Tory, Tony, sorry, Tory Blair's leadership, or Tony Blair's leadership. That was back from 1997 to 2007. Now, for 10 years, the British Guardian newspaper had been fighting to have these letters from Charles published under freedom of information rules. According to the Guardian, the letters show that Charles was persistent and demanding in trying to get elected governments to do his bidding. This is interesting because we're often told that we live under a constitutional monarchy where the royal family are beholden to Parliament as the representative of the people. We don't live under an absolute monarchy such as existed in medieval times or such as exists today in countries like Saudi Arabia, where a lot of Charlie's friends live. These monarchies, these monarchies are answerable to few, if any, laws. As well as being told this, we're also told that our constitutional monarchy is above politics, and the Queen herself is often held up as an example of this, she having seldom been caught giving her opinion on political matters, political matters supposedly being beneath her. This, however, is not true for other members of her family, especially the male princes. I'll just go back in time a little bit, quite a bit. Back in 1936, when fascism was on the rise, Edward VIII sat on the English throne. Edward VIII is sometimes referred to as a Nazi sympathiser. In fact, he was a Nazi. Pre-war, he was a regular visitor to Germany, where he inspected SS troops and expressed great admiration for Hitler, as well as a hatred of communism. As with Charles, Edward VIII also liked to write letters expressing his right-wing political opinions. In 1940, at the very time the British people were suffering through nightly bombing raids from the Luftwaffe, Edward told the German ambassador to Portugal, quote, Continued heavy bombing should bring the English to their knees. In 1941, he was shuffled off to be governor of the Bahamas, a country which he called a third-rate British colony. Yet in this year, 1941, with France and most of Europe under Nazi rule, the invasion of the Soviet Union taking place and the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, Edward could still tell an American journalist, quote, good quote this one, from an evil point of view, (laughs) good in that it's so evil, Hitler is the right man for Germany. We should still be doing our utmost to at least make peace with this man. 1941, Edward was a Nazi. Prince Philip can't be quite as outspoken as I'm sure he'd like to be, but every now and then a stupid and or racist comment dribbles out. Hardly surprising, this man had three sisters who all married SS officers, and he is known to hold views which come very close to Nazi ideology in many respects. That's the eugenics, and you can look a lot of this stuff up. Despite this, he still has his admirers. Tony Abbott being (laughs) one of the biggest admirers. 
ignoring the fact that Philip was already the nominal head of both the Australian and Canadian armies, and he has a very, 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 if you look up Wikipedia, a very long list of titles to his name. This year, Abbott gave him an Australian version of a knighthood. Philip was presented this gong by his wife in a very weird ritual, and if you check out the picture, both of them also look bemused by yes. this ritual. They still went through with it, though. Getting back to Charles, his letters included demands that he be listened to on topics such as alternative medicine and the influence of big supermarket chains. He also called for a nude culling of the badger, uh, thereby continuing years of animosity between the royals and the badgers. <laughs> and this reminded me of a... What have the badgers uh, ever done? Yeah, I don't know what the badgers... They're vicious, you know. <laughs> they're, they're a pest, unlike the royals. So... <laughs> At least they're not inbred. I should be ruled by badgers. <laughs> yeah, they're an alternative test, possibly an alternative royal family. <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> thing. But this reminds me of a Lexi sales comment, Chris, which I know you're very interested in. A Lexi sales comment regarding the royals. They should be gassed like the badgers. <laughs> I'm not advocating that, folks. I'm not. Right. <laughs> However, the most sinister letter, to be serious, the most sinister letter Charles wrote was in relation to the British armed forces in Iraq. Writing directly to Tony Blair, he said, quote, Our armed forces are asked to do an extremely challenging job without necessary resources. He went on to call for increased spending on an already bloated military in order to continue a war which most observers now consider to have been morally and legally without merit. A lot of people said so at the time, but I think most other folk who supported the war are now coming round to that view too. For his part, Tony Blair responded to Charles positively. He acknowledged the failures of the Lynx helicopter and alluded to increased expenditure on the armed forces. Tony Blair is now viewed by many himself as being a war criminal. So they can babysit Harry as well. Yeah, well, yeah, Harry, because Harry's in there, you know, G.I. Joe Harry. It is clear that these unelected and supposedly figurehead royals are actually very involved in political meddling. They also hold very high military ranks and appear to view themselves as something like generals in a field of battle. Just this past few weeks, Charles' youngest son, Harry, has been touring Australia and New Zealand under the guise of Anzac commemoration, which was, what, three weeks ago Mm -hmm. now? Young Harry has been constantly dressed in army camouflage. Even when being presented to young children, he has paraded around as if he's in a war zone. I find this very insidious. I don't like this. It seems to be little more than an army recruitment drive, and he gets applauded for it. Meanwhile, his father is doing his best to also spruik militarism, as these letters show. Despite Charles' taxpayer-funded legal team, and they're very angry people too, these people, despite his taxpayer-funded legal team doing their best to hush these letters up, it's good to see them being published. Maybe this can lead to the Windsors not just being above politics, but out of politics altogether, and then put in the past where they belong. Will said. Will said. And did you see his um, Charles lady, woman, yeah, ripping yeah. the guy's microphone off of him? Did you see that? No, no. no. It's on the news yesterday. Too. The guy was asking Charles, Charles, are you still sending these letters to Prime Minister? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're asking for this, demanding that. And his woman, you know, the security Camilla or whatever. Camilla bold money. No, not her. No, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. She wouldn't no, no. get her hands dirty doing that. Right. No, it's a mere common woman. Oh, a common woman. Uh, representing... <laughs> 
She really, she, <laughs> You're getting she, looks from a mere common woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> looks and they don't come a more common than Kim. <laughs> it's true. Oh, what? <laughs> but she ripped this big woolly thing off of the, um, the, the journalist's mic. microphone, yeah. Right. And right. He was given the report, so he gets the last word. Anyway, anyway, um, uh, you'll be interested to know that we should all be having a go. That uh, we've got uh, a new fairness budget. In fact, of course, the government, the Liberal government, is pursuing the same strategy it had last year, which is to slash social services and end the so-called age of entitlement, which only applies to poor people, of course. Having spent the best part of a year in a vain attempt to secure passage of its austerity measures, the government's changed tack by adopting the concept of fairness which means in true Orwellian style, it's going to be exactly the opposite of this, turning the meaning of the word on its head. The clearest example is the childcare package. And Lance is one of the, the signature uh, things of this budget. Bill is a jobs for family measure. The government claims that families earning between 65000 and 170000 will be $30 a week better off. Well, this is nonsense. But the package, which is supposed to cost about $3.5 million, is to be paid for by cuts imposed, but not yet legislated, to family tax benefits in last year's budget. These add up to five million. So there's a million and a half saving already. These include stopping payments to family once a child reaches six rather than 16, and has been estimated to reduce the income of lower income earners by as much as $6,000 per year. At present, Families earning more than $65,000 a year with one parent not working receive childcare subsidies for up to 24 hours a week without having to meet activity tests. Now they will have to meet these tests, much as the doll people on the doll do. They've got to show that they're working, studying or training for a defined number of hours per fortnight, so they're going to be worse off. The government's proposed changes to its paid parental scheme also shows how the demands of the banks and the financial elites for cuts in social services are routinely translated into attacks on welfare recipients as criminals. Under the present system, recipients are entitled to a payment of 11500 from the government for 18 weeks' leave, in in, in addition to any money they might receive from the employer. The scheme was designed to allow both these. So, in other words, you get the government handout and you get the contribution from the employer. This was seen as perfectly legal. Now it's being described by Joe Hocking as double-dipping. And to their great embarrassment, we find out that several government ministers have been double-dipping, including uh, Marius Cormann. His wife has been double-dipping. It's just sidekick. Well, that's right. Now, I mean, in fact, it's been perfectly legal to do this. And, and women have been doing, but now they've been uh, told that they're double-dipping. As a result, that it, it's been estimated that almost half of all new mothers around $80,000 a year will lose access to the full amount available under the present system. Remembering, of course, that receiving both payments had been part of the original scheme. This means women who are acting completely within the law are now being branded as rorters of the system. I know, and they announced this on Mother's Day, which is not exactly a good tactical <laughs> move. Sensitive. Fairness is also being used in a similar way to introduce austerity into the pensions. 
Under new measures, a pensioner coupled with assets, excluding the family home, of more than 823000 will lose the part pension. Previously, the asset limit was $1.5 million. This means that 91,000 people will lose their part pension. Another 235,000 will have their pensions reduced via a lowering of the assets threshold and a doubling of the tapering rate. Their payments will be cut $3 per thousand of assets above the new threshold. The aim of the measure is not the savings involved, which is only $2.4 million over four years. It's a way to open an assault, a further assault in the future, on the pension system. Australia's the editorial in The Australian laid out the agenda of the financial elites in whose interest the government acts. It declared that Morrison had done a little pre-budget gardening, but it, uh, it wants uh, a razor-tooth effort to get rid of all the overhead branches. In other words, the government's not going far enough, according to, to The Australian. Describing the changes the government made as puny, the editorial stated that while the pension trim was in the right direction, the pension had to be a genuine social safety net. Well, that sounds all right. In other words, it shouldn't be regarded as an entitlement after a lifetime of work, enabling people to spend the last years of their life in relative decency, but simply the bare minimum. Emphasising that point, it declared, quote, Many retirees still believe in the false credo I've paid taxes all my life, and now I'm entitled to a pension. Well, they have. Well, exactly, mm, exactly. But it's their the, money anyway. That well, that's right. The auditorial pointed to where the government's attack on pensions is heading, insisting it was time to re, re, time to put the family home outside the welfare means test. Many pensioners now own houses worth more than a million dollars, not because they've become suddenly wealthy but because of the property bubble. If homes were to be included in a future assets test, these pensioners would be forced to sell or undertake reverse mortgages in order to sustain their incomes in the face of crippling pension cuts. The fraud of fairness gloss over this year's budget is exposed by a specialty published budget booklet, which is called, laughingly, Fairness in Tax and Benefits, that's what the booklet's called. The second biggest cut in the budget, worth $1.7 billion over four years, is labelled Strengthening. Strengthening the Integrity of Welfare Payments. It'll involve ramping up investigations against welfare fraud, meaning that the unemployed, sole parents, disabled and pensioners will face intensified harassment. These are people who already live in poverty. And uh, the, the mission will be to detect those who are accidentally overpaid. By contrast, the government has not included even a cent in increased revenue from its supposed fairness crackdown on multinationals mm. that evade taxes by shifting their reported profits to overseas tax havens. And he said he was going to do something about that. That's for, for political effect. Hockey waved a copy of a new piece of legislation which he called the Multinational Anti-Avoidance Law, telling mm. Parliament... When we reach catch companies cheating, they'll have to pay back double what they owe plus interest. This is a sham. Mm. The budget papers themselves <clears throat> forecast nothing except, quote, an unqualifiable gain to revenue. In other words, this is tokenism to keep you amused. 
The much vaulted increases in childcare rebates for working parents will give the greatest benefits to high-income earners, but strip unemployed parents of subsidies, making it even more difficult for them to find jobs. Moreover, the higher rebates will be paid for by abolishing family tax benefits for low-income families. Even a spending, there's even a spending cut to child dental benefits. $126 million over four years. This is dressed up as a step towards fairness. This is just part of the $2 billion worth of rationalising and streaming, as it's called, throughout the public health system over the next five years, on top of the $80 billion over 10 years stripped in last year's budget from funding to the states and territories. Young jobless workers aged 25 or under remain a particular target. Instead of now waiting for six months for unemployment benefits, which would mean certain death, you would think, uh, it's now proposed that they will have to wait four weeks. <clears throat> Amongst young workers, the vastly understated official jobless rate is twice as high, yet they'll be punished now for being unable to find work. While social spending is being slashed, the budget lifts both funding for war and surveillance. Defence spending, you'll be pleased to know, will rise by $2.5 billion to $31.8 billion, up 8.5% with most of the extra funds paying for new military hardware and Australia's frontline involvement in the criminally-led US wars in the Middle East. The intelligence agencies, our friends for certain, will receive another $450 million increase on top of the $630 million announced last year, supposedly to combat terrorism but mostly for electronic surveillance of you and I. And actually, the internet, the prices for internet are going to go up so that they can surveil our own metadata. So we're paying to spy on ourselves. Right. The government will act some federal public sector jobs on top of the 17,000 already destroyed by the Abbott government and the more than 10,000 cut under the previous Labor government. This is decimating social services in addition to the devastating cuts made to the funding of community services, which means that thousands of organisations throughout the country due to, will due to be totally cut off by July the 1st. And there's a lot being said about the violence against women. But the organisations that are fighting this, they're having their funding cut. The budget displays similar callousness towards, towards the world's poor, with foreign aid being cut mm. by another $3.5 billion over three years, mm. after a billion was slashed last year. Less for foreign aid and more for foreign wars. That's right. Uh, mm. That's exactly There's no it. relationship there. No. no. Aid to Africa has been reduced by 70%. They don't need any help at all, as you can tell. Hockey has un uh, unveiled $5 billion worth of tax concession for contractors and small businesses, with turnovers of less than $2 million a year. For these business, the corporate tax rate will be reduced from 30% to 28.5%, which is 28% more than Google pays mm. in tax. And they will receive tax write-offs for equipment purchases totalling up to 20000 over the next two years. Even Alan Kohler, hardly a communist, has pointed out this is not credible. Any lift in output will soon take most small operators above the $2 million a year threshold. Workers will also suffer bracket creep as inflation pushes them into higher income tax brackets. As a result, the average income tax rate will increase from 21.7% to 
to 27.4% over the next decade. Even more fraudulent are the assumptions upon which this budget is based. They're based on growth suddenly jumping from 2.5% to 3% within two years. Now, most economists think it will go the other way, not increase. Conscious of the government's dire political predicament and the possibility of a further impasse of the Senate, the tabloid newspapers, the Herald Scum and the Australian, proclaimed the budget a bonanza for workers, clearly seeking to bolster the government electoral stocks. But the financial press, in which you're more likely to read the truth, was scathing, denouncing the government from backing away from the frontal austerity assault that it attempted last year. So... The business press is saying, you're not going hard enough. Mm. You're not going hard enough. The Labour opposition echoed this response, reprising its pitch to big business as a more reliable instrument for opposing the austerity agenda. Chris Bowen welcomed the small business tax concession, but he denounced the government for increasing the debit and spending. So much for Labour opposition. Mm. I think Bill Shorten also came out and said... Oh, we would give more money to small business, just more handouts. Right, right, yes. I can't even listen to Bill Shorten. No, if if, if he comes on, I just straight away. I mean, I probably should pay attention, but I can't. It's like being beaten up with a wet paper bag. It is, it is, that's right. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.